that had arisen following the death of Ed's father. The figure that had been agreed was so large that Ed could not at first grasp it. It didn't seem as if the amount of money in the letter could have anything to do with him or his affairs. It was simply too large to understand. Ed's father had followed a long family tradition of leaving his affairs in a dreadful tangle. The wealth of the Simmons family had been colossal. It had survived generations of mismanagement. But somehow the taxman's demands had always been met or else avoided. To improve matters, Ed's fathers and his advisers had designed a series of trusts, in turn owned by overseas trusts in Guernsey, in turn owned by other trusts in Liechtenstein. As a result, the fourth Marquis had paid no inheritance tax on his own father's death, and little or no income tax during his lifetime. The arrangement that had been constructed to help him avoid all this tax was so complex it was probable that no single human being fully understood them. When Ed's father died, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs had taken Ed's trustees to court, and Ed had been advised to move abroad. Now the matter had been settled, and the bills were coming in. Ed knew as soon as he read the opening sentence of the letter that his life was about to change. Decisive action had to be taken. The responsibilities that had fallen to him on his father's death must now be taken up. His inheritance, the large Hartlepool estate and its enormous house on the borders of Durham and Yorkshire, was finally his, and his life of leisure was over. For five years he had done nothing. Trod water, in a manner of speaking, while other people had written him letters, either seeking instruction or giving him information. He had almost never replied. How could he be expected to understand letters that began with sentences such as You will recall the judgment in the case of Rex v. Chorley settled estates in 1934. Ed sighed as he thought of all the trouble that lay ahead of him, then went outside into the heat of a late spring morning in Provence. The sun was climbing in the sky. Ed walked along the path to the swimming pool, which was about fifteen metres long and made of white marble, surrounded by an area of terracotta tiles. Sun loungers sat along its side, and there was a small pool house at the far end. Here were lilos and beach balls and other objects that Ed never used. They were provided for the use of the villa's occasional tenants. Sometimes Ed went back to England in the hottest part of the summer and let the villa to friends. He wound back the pool cover, took off his dressing gown, and flung it onto the nearest sun lounger. The blue water sparkled in the spring sun that had just cleared the tops of the surrounding trees. Dew glinted on the freshly mown grass. Ed picked up the skimmer and removed from the surface of the water a few dead leaves, a couple of drowned wasps, and a large spider whose legs were still flailing. He emptied the contents of the net into a corner of the garden, then lowered himself slowly into the water. At first the temperature seemed cold, but within moments, as he swam the first of twenty lengths, it was refreshing. The water felt like cream against his skin and it lapped gently against the sides of the pool or gurgled in the overflow pipe. He made a turn, pushing underwater, and changed from a medium-fast crawl to breaststroke. After a few more lengths, he turned on his back and began a gentle backstroke, half closing his eyes to keep out the water, which was salty like the sea. Now, as he lay on his back, the sun was a distant golden dot. The endless blue sky arched over him, warming his limbs. 
He turned again and swam with a steady breaststroke, smelling the fresh air of late spring, the scent of newly cut grass, the tang of salt. Ed was at his happiest at this hour of the day, when life was at its simplest. All he had to do was get from one end of the pool to the other and count off the lengths as he did so. He swam with the grace and fluency you would expect from a man who had been swimming like this most spring and summer mornings for the last five years. Fragments of thought went through his mind as he turned and swam and turned and swam. I shall miss all this. There's nowhere to swim at Hartlepool Hall. The lake is full of blanket weed and far too cold. Then another fragment of a different kind. I wonder if the beech trees are in leaf yet at home. He felt as if he was no longer in a swimming pool, but being carried on some mysterious tide, sweeping him on to a destination of which he remained for the moment.